Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Grow Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that are going to allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over 50 million pounds worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. Dominic Air from Blenheim Palace. He is the CEO of Blenheim Palace, which is a world heritage site in the United Kingdom in Oxfordshire. So I'm really, really excited to hear about how he runs this business, how he's transitioned from being a finance director to being the CEO, working with the community and lots more different aspects of business. So I'm looking to, without a doubt, pick Dominic's brain and find out, you know, what it's like being a CEO. I think it's the first time I spoke to a CEO of somebody that manages a world heritage site, which I'm sure comes with its own pressures, you know, <laughs> uh, and I think it's going to be super fun. So, Dominic, welcome on. Really excited to have you on. You Thank know, you. It's great you know, to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Perfect. And uh, really looking to hear a little bit about the story. I mean, how did you come to find yourself where you are now in control of this huge site with massive heritage being, I think it was the birthplace, is that correct, the birthplace of uh, Winston Churchill? Is that right? As, um, yeah. Actually, as an aside, there are two <laughs> things that bless us completely as a place. If you think about most stately homes and those kind of things, they're usually in the middle of nowhere because if you were a lord or a duke and you had the money to build yourself a large stately home you'd normally put it in the middle of nowhere because it'd be peaceful <laughs> the two blessings for us is that when queen anne delighted at the first duke's victory at the battle of blenheim was kind of pouring over a map and going we must reward this man with some land somewhere she points to the piece of land that's in the home counties it's halfway between london and birmingham and is on the oxford stratford tourist road so wow. we're really blessed there and then you go back to the sort of the mid-1800s and the Duke's younger brother and his wife are traveling back, wife heavily pregnant. The builders overrun. You wouldn't believe that, would you? But, but even in those days, builders could <laughs> overrun. And so they diverted to his older brother's house, mm -hmm. uh, which happened to be Blenheim. And by sheer chance, Winston was born there. So by oh, really? complete miracle, fluke of luck, <laughs> Winston Churchill, our biggest tourist brand imaginable, is born at Blenheim. And that could have been really born fan, you know, of, uh, of Churchill. He's, you know, some amazing stuff. Well, he must fan. come. He uh, must come after the 17th of May. We reopened with a big new Winston exhibition that's been partly funded by the government under the Culture Recovery Fund. And in fact, they announced some some more some more programs of that last week. So it'll be big. But yeah, Churchill, huge brand for us and very proud of him. And he was very proud of his, of his relationship with Blenheim. And yeah. so that's an absolute gem for us that he was born here. And he shouldn't have been born here. Yeah. Got born in the wrong place. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you, and also, Blenheim Palace is a home to the Spencers. Is that correct as well? Spence, the Spencer Churchills. And Lady Diana Spencer is, if you go up about four generations and then track across, she is loosely related, which means, strictly speaking, our Duke is 
very loosely related to William and Harry, the two two princes. So that's a nice connection for us. And in fact, I think we've redrawn the family tree to make it really wide in the <laughs> guidebook. So, so it does actually capture them. But it wasn't that that drew me to Blenheim because my background was as a, well, I, I originally was a washer-upper at, at college. Oh, wow. And, that, and then, then I worked for, you may be too young to remember this chain, Tandy. Do you remember Tandy? Were they uh, electrical chains? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. there you go. Not I that young. The... <laughs> <laughs> As I'm frequently told, right? <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah, I worked there across the counter and then that wasn't going terribly well for me. So I trained as a chartered accountant. Got really lucky that I met the first of a couple of guys who were amazing mentors to me. And this was a guy called James Dow, who was a corporate finance specialist. And he set up a new corporate finance team where I was working. And he was determined not, this was in Liverpool. He was determined that we wouldn't just be doing management buyouts and acquisitions in Liverpool and the area. He wanted to be known for something. So he chose football teams. Oh, wow. And so, so James advised on some of the very first big name football club acquisitions, like Franny Lee buying Man City, the Johnson family buying Everton. And he went on to advise a whole bunch of others. And so that was a, a period of great learning for me as I was being stretched out of shape. And then after my son was born, we moved back down to Oxford, where my wife was based. I joined a, a French investment bank called Paribas, now BNP yeah. Paribas. Familiar with them as well, yeah. Actually. Yeah, they're good, lovely. It was a great bank to work at. And again, by pure chance, although it was really small, there were three or four teams that were really world-class at what they did. And one of them was the media and telecoms team, where I met some amazing people, including another guy who was a great mentor called Ken Goldsborough. And... Bizarrely, Paribas at that point stood astride the world of uh, financing cable TV and mobile telephony and all that kind of thing. And so I joined them and got the chance to be really entrepreneurial. And I specialized in a, in a stint down there with, with Paribas and Barclays Capital in things like commercial radio and children's visual content. So I did, I mean, by pure chance, I ended up helping Chris Evans by Virgin Radio. Oh, wow. I can remember. I can remember being taken aside by my then boss's boss, a very wise French guy called Pascal Boris, who said, came in the next morning really bleary-eyed, and he said, Dominique, you have to remember, not every deal you do will be the front page of the Sun, the Times, <laughs> and the lead story on the nine o'clock news. But so I came out of investment banking having learned a huge amount. But around two thousand two, three, we had the dot com bubble burst. A lot of media financings just stopped happening, and so I took some time off. Came back to Oxford, discovered my children, who were like at that point four or five and getting interesting, and decided very, very arrogantly that I'll, I'll just stay in Oxford and become. The, the finance director of a local business, you know, who wouldn't want me, chartered accountant, investment banker, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it turned out the list of uh, local companies who didn't want me was, was long and glorious. <laughs> and it included anyone who thought that any finance director should have at least one day's experience of being a finance director before they joined. And I didn't, of course. And I was just about to give up on that when I saw, and this takes us back to the old days of job hunting, we opened the local paper on a Friday morning, the Oxford Times, yeah. where the jobs were advertised. And I kind of, there were several people in the coffee shop all looking at the same time. And I saw this jo- advert for the first ever finance director at Blenheim. Thought, oh, that's got to be me. Right. So I, I raced up the hill, 
took out my presentation, my pitch deck that all investment bankers had to have, despite the fact that it hadn't worked anywhere else. And so I adapted it, sent it off within an hour, I guess. And I got about 10 minutes later, I got a really surprised phone call from Blenheim from a nice lady saying, we've advertised this new job this morning and you've applied already. I said, oh, I said, um, yeah, I'm very, very keen. And I, I think I'd be spot on for the job. And she said, well, we think we'd like to meet you. When are you free? And I said, well, I can be there in about 15 minutes. And I mean, she <laughs> kind of choked on her tea or coffee. And we eventually agreed to meet the next week. But I went there for my first interview. I was the first of what turned out to be about 40 people who were interviewed. But I came away from that first interview convinced I would be offered the job. And I did and worked with this amazing man called John Hoy, who had great experience in the area. And so for 13 years, I was finance director at a time when Blenheim was blossoming from being a very old-fashioned stately home. And the world of landed estates and stately home was not an entrepreneurial world at that time. It was still very much, you know, it was run by the oldest son of the previous person who ran it. And that's great for some kinds of stability, but but most of the entrepreneurs who listen, who follow you, probably won't be picking their son and their son's son and their son's son's son to be the management team. And so it's just the world in which these landed estates are getting real competition out there, whatever things they do. And Blenheim kind of blossomed up, opened up. We had a lot of fun. We, we started new businesses. We, we made existing businesses a lot more competitive. We invested. That was a big thing. We invested. <laughs> and it was all going swimmingly well. And then John suddenly announced his intention to move on. And the trustees asked if I would step into his role. And it was one of those weird moments because I probably was quite close to leaving too. I mean, John didn't know this, but yeah. I'd been there 13 years. It seemed like a really long time. And I sat down and thought about it and thought, I don't want to just be chief executive here if it's just carrying on what we were doing before. I want to believe there's a point to a landed estate. I want to believe the stuff that a landed estate can do that no other kind of business can do. I don't want to believe that we're a conglomerate, just a random assortment of businesses all owned by one person or one set of shareholders. And so in one of those moments where you pull on every strand of your life experiences and the books you've read and the business heroes that you've worshipped and kind of studied and that, just pulled on that together and really kind of had this aha moment. I remember calling a guy who's our property director now who joined just after me and saying, you've got to come around right now. I I want to tell you what's in my head at this point. And it was about trying to identify what the real core purpose of a landed estate was, what was unique about it. And she's very passionate about it, which obviously a key to to success is having that passion, you know, especially after being there for 13 years. Were you passionate because you were now getting into the point where you you potentially had some control to sort of make your own decisions? But that was what, what was exciting you. I think well, it was twofold. There's always a, a strand that was landed estates and stately homes get under your skin. Lots of people who work at them kind of, it's a more personal connection than I worked for X for, for X yeah. years, you know. But the second thing was very much, I felt we'd alighted on a formula that made sense of what was truly unique about a landed estate. And if you can identify that element of any business, why it really makes sense, what it can uniquely do that other things can't do, then you've got a formula that can adapt and flex, but will always point you on the path to growth and success. We're not a visitor attraction. Yes, we attract visitors. We're not a property business. Yes, we we own and build properties, but it was kind of identifying 
we've been in this spot for 300 years. We fully intend to be doing what we're doing in 300 years time. That's an awfully long time horizon. And if you, if you compare us to you know, Vodafone, near neighbors of ours, huge in Newbury, mm. will they be huge in Newbury in 15 years time? I don't know. I mean, their business is changing yeah, that the opportunity to plan longer term then, would you say, you know, knowing that you've got that, that long, long history. But how important is it to keep bringing innovation to the table? Well, know? it's not a history point per se. It is to say we have a connection to this location. There is no chance. Zero, yeah, Vodafone could move tomorrow. They could move yeah. in 10 years' time. Lenham is a very physical place. No one's going to wake up and go, ooh, we've worked out if we outsource the whole place to Eastern Europe, we can save a whole bunch of money. <laughs> no one's going to say, ah, oh, Blenheim's a really kind of energy-intensive thing to run. You'll never get it to be efficient. Let's move to a nice new build in Wiltshire. No yeah. one's going to say those things. Yeah. We will be in this spot. So it's that identification, that long-term thing that says, right, if you know, without doubt, that you're going to be in this location in 300 years' time, what opportunity does that give us? Because if you think about the, the world of our competition, you've got commercial enterprises, you've got government bodies, and you've got the third sector, you know, charities and social enterprises. Now, we are without doubt a commercial enterprise. We invest capital for profit. Yeah. But like a public sector body, we are completely grounded in our location. So yeah. public sector bodies can't generally invest. So we potentially are on this intersect of, of investing capital for profit and having a permanent tie to location, which means we can invest for the very long term in this spot, completely confident that we will be the ones to eventually reap the benefit because we will definitely still be here. So if you look at our purpose, which you describe as being, we want to be the lifeblood of the local economy. We want to enhance the lives of local people. We want to share and protect this extraordinary place. That's all about trying to articulate what will be in our long-term interest. If we have either as a visitor attraction or as a property business or anything else, if we have a booming local economy and an ecosystem of businesses and jobs that depend on us as well as us depending yeah. on them, then we will do very well. If people want to move to this place, if people want to bring out their children in this place, if people want to set up more businesses on the back of the million or so visitors we draw to the area each year, then that actually is a wonderfully virtuous circle for us because it will attract more people. So for us, that long-term identification of our fundamental connection to the area is the secret in each of our businesses. And so it's an interesting thing for the audience who don't have that benefit where they haven't got that most of the time is what I see here is you're, you're asking questions of the business, right? And I think that's what a lot of people don't do is trying to get to the core of what you are. You know, and I think that that gives you, once you get to that core of what you are, and that gives you that opportunity to really kind of, that, does it give you that confidence in your mind so that go out there and make better decisions? You know? so not just for us to make, for me to make better decisions yeah. or my sort of immediate cohorts, but it's actually a way of empowering everybody in the business to understand why we do the things yeah. we do, why we don't do certain other things. Yeah. Yeah. and to give them the confidence in any situation, whether it's a one-to-one -one issue with a customer or potential customer, or whether it's the discussion with suppliers or, or local authorities yeah. or anyone else, it gives them that certainty. Of, it's like they can see into the hive mind. They know why yeah, we do awesome, what yeah. we do. They know what we're likely to want and value. They also can see instinctively 
what wouldn't appeal to us, what we wouldn't value. Having real clarity about what your organisation wants, well, likes and dislikes almost. It gives everyone a real easy way of understanding how they're performing. Is that what it's, you're it's true on, on two yeah. levels. I mean, firstly, there was a an actual moment when the trustees have approached me, when we've articulated this vision and, and we suddenly say, so these ought to be our goals. And if we can achieve these goals, this business will be several times the size quickly. This is great. And so I described that purpose. I described those goals and the ideas to our trustees and said, look, this isn't a right or wrong thing, but this is exactly where my mind goes. So if you're looking at this and shuddering slightly, then I'm not, I'm not the right <laughs> I'm not the right chief executive. You're absolutely yeah. bang on, Adam. Yeah. I'm not the right one. And that's not a problem. We'll figure that out and we'll yeah. we'll we'll have a good handover. It's not a problem. Um, but if you if this does appeal, this is exactly where my instincts will always take me. So there's 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 that on that level it's true. And um, that was a good fit for them, was it? Yeah, it's really Yeah. Yeah, I think landed estates can sometimes be perceived as a little bit out of time and space. They come from this sort of aristocratic era that's not very democratic and all, all the rest of it. And there is a feeling that they need to find their feet in the modern era. And like I say, because I think there are unique things landed estates could do, there's no reason why they shouldn't find that feet. So I think the discomfort around inherited wealth and all these things, to the extent it's there, is replaced by a kind of certainty. You know what? If there's any... For example, any entity out there that, as well as running a visitor attraction, would want to promote the whole area for visits, including the competition, then it's Blenheim. If, if there's any property business out there that wants to figure out how to do affordable property even better than housing associations, that would be Blenheim. And it's, instant, it's in our interest to do this. It's in yeah. our interest to know so you're that... Feeding in, you're from the location, starting to feed into other business interests, essentially, yeah. Oh, totally, because yeah. if our rival visitor attractions in the area flourish too, that brings more people to the area in total. It means there are more small businesses around trying to serve yeah. those people, whether that's hotels, restaurants, shops, whatever, all of those things. And having all those people wanting to be in our area not just doesn't just turbocharge our own visitor attraction business, but it means our property business, for example, will have people wanting new buildings. Um, it means people looking to move into our homes in the area, they will come to an area where they will all have jobs and opportunities, but then they can also say, and our children will grow up with world-class training opportunities at Blenheim or Bista Village, and oh, they well, will I'm, have I'm many. I'm a big fan of Bista Village, by the way. So oh, uh, me too. Yeah, <laughs> big fan. Mm. Me too, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, the purpose thing crystallizes an awful lot, but it also allows you to deal with bumps in the road too, including yeah. coronavirus. And I think what was great was... There were no, there were lots of people in the business right through it who could see the ways Blenheim could help the local community at this time and just know, right, reliably predict that we would support them in doing so because they would go, well, if that's our purpose to enhance the lives of local people, how could we not do yeah. this, this help? And so, Absolutely. and we do, and we do. So it gives, it gives a kind of a guiding light that a short-term business plan can't. A short-term business plan can last you a few years, but this purpose is a kind of touchstone against which you can measure much longer-term plans. And that, I think, for a lot of people in the business, and, you know, I, I said earlier on, Blenheim gets under people's skin, and it does. You know, The number of people we've got at Blenheim who've done 40 years' service. Do you put this down to the culture, would you say? I mean, is it the culture and the association of being a part of something that is 
a heritage site is something that really draws people. I mean, say you're a small business owner and you're, you're listening to what we're talking about now. I'm seeing between the lines of, you know, the innovation that you're coming up with, the wanting to work with the community, helping the communities to flourish, looking at the bigger picture mm. of saying, right, we're where we are, but this is what's all around us, right, geographically. How can we draw more in from the geographic location. Well, we build them up, we build us up. So it's a, a more, you know, it's a, a strategy with more innovation in it. With somebody that's a smaller business and being somebody that has got a finance director background and then has gone on to be a CEO, can we talk a little bit about the numbers? How important for you are the numbers in business, understanding the numbers? I mean, it'd be really interesting to hear because that's part of your background. What do you say? So there's a couple of things that jump into my head as you asked that. The first is I know businesses attract similar kinds of businesses and the number of purposeful businesses I know who are led by people who used to be accountants it makes us smile sometimes and it's not yeah. unique to accountants but I do think to win the kind of the, the intellectual arguments with your stakeholders about why we should adopt a particular path a finance director background gives you a real kind of credibility in saying this isn't just me having a loopy dream that says this business yeah. should be fluffy yeah. and nice. Yeah. yeah, this is based on you know it, what will happen to our values, uh, our, like our, literally the value of our assets. What will happen to um, the way customers view us? All that kind of thing. So that having to be able to articulate in numbers what ought to happen if we do certain things is really, really important to us. And the number of businesses around us that adopt the same approach is true. And actually, if you are the owner of a business and you've got the management team approaching you and saying, we'd like to be cuddly or something, yeah, that's a hell of a jump. To have the credibility to be able to write numbered business plans based on these ideas and set very clear targets which are quantitative that gives us a lot of confidence and gives our owners a lot of confidence the other thing is to go if you're a small business you know you don't have to have a massive purpose i mean we talk a lot about apprenticeships and we have some very ambitious goals on apprenticeships but if as a business you want to feel you are contributing to the community around you and the economy around you, the easiest thing in the world you can do is apprenticeships. There's something like an eight times payback to every pound a business spends on apprenticeships. And of course, right now... businesses, especially like, you know, we haven't worked with thousands of businesses. Many don't embrace apprenticeships, but we've got people that still work for me now that worked with me for 10 years that came through as apprentices and done really well. Oh, it's invaluable, Adam. It's invaluable. And actually what we discovered very quickly was the apprenticeship was as valuable for Blenheim people as it was for the apprentice. They got so much from feeling that they were nurturing someone and teaching them skills, the kind of skills that would allow that individual to go out and make a living for themselves. It gave them such pride as well. And so apprenticeships are a permanent part of our business, but the payback's amazing. And especially, especially when you consider that right now, the government is essentially paying for almost all the apprenticeship under the... Well, um, we've just got this Kickstarter scheme in exactly. that may refer for other businesses that is a powerful thing. You know, we've embraced that because we can bring young people in, give them a chance. We've just took someone in on the uh, kicks, Kickstarter program. Do you know what? I think there's such a... Sometimes a business almost crazily looks down on something like that. It's like, oh, well, I'm not going to get the best people. But the reality is you can get great people coming that haven't had a chance. There's a lot of good people out there that are un 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 never had a job, but actually are smart people, you know?
Oh, you're completely right, Adam. You really are. And there's any number of people at Blenheim who would would say, stand alongside you and say exactly the same thing. And it's not just the technical skills training. It's the attitude that many of these apprentices bring in. And actually, that bleeds back into your business in a good way. Because when, when the kind of old, you know, sort of cynical staff see younger apprentices... One of the things I learned many years ago is that if you want to change a business, really bring in new voices. Because if a business for a long time has become static, a new voice, new eyes are what can bring that push. And it sounds like that, a little bit like that when you came into your CEO role. You know, another thing that I'd like to ask, which I think is important, you've got a, a business that's been there three, 300 years that's amazing in terms of to look at. It's stunning. You know, it's got a lot of history. It's, um, you know, World Heritage Site. A lot of businesses don't realize that they could make connections with a business like that. It sounds to me that you're saying working with local communities. A lot of business owners don't reach out outside of their own front yard almost, and they could go and build a relationship with a powerful place, couldn't they? Absolutely. Is that something that you know you do a lot? And how does that work? Do you go and seek businesses out, or do they come to you and say, "Look, you know, we'd like to, you know, what could we do here?" How does that work? Well, we we probably try on every level because you're absolutely right. It is difficult to break down that barrier, which works two ways. Businesses tend to be quite inward looking and people assume from outside that it's difficult to get in. So we have a very positive set of programs, including I meet every three months with every parish council in our area just to tell them what we're doing. And that's not just because they're interesting in their own right, but of course, parish councils comprise individuals many of whom are in business in the area or have families oh, absolutely right yeah, yeah. so that's very helpful we we write we write newsletters which get door dropped to every house in our area nice. uh, a couple of times a year telling them what we're up to we have our front line our first goal of our 10 10 year goals is to treble our contribution to the local economy independently measured it's measured by a local university and we have several strands of in that of how we try to accelerate that contribution. One of them is the Blenheim Startups Challenge, where we go out with several business networks and we invite all new businesses less than two years old to pitch in a kind of almost like a dragon's den thing, except they get a whole bunch of coaching on the way in. So they get several days of coaching from some really seasoned entrepreneurs, including um, Gary Frank, who was one of the founders of the fabulous Bacon Brothers. Mm. And they get a bunch of training and coaching, then they come and pitch and then the top one or two we will really work with very hard to say not just are we going to buy from you but we'll take all the different bits we have at Blenheim and any bit that can help you we will deploy it to help you so whether that's help with your web stuff whether it's help with marketing whether it's uh, what we've done we've got our conference and banqueting team that will help them run launch events or thank you events for their early customers we'll we had um, so one interesting of the- because so many businesses like your business and this is why I was really interested in this in- interview particular because you know you're in this place and some might see it as untouchable or unreachable but actually there is reach there and i think there's opportunity there especially if anyone's listening from oxford they should be listening going oh well you know how can i get involved with that you know how can i how can i become a part of that and i think that a lot of businesses just don't look at what's available for to them from a community aspect you know and from an actual you know partnerships or, or joint ventures and just look at what they can go and do with someone that is essentially a much bigger fish than they are but they could certainly get some good recognition maybe some good pr off the back of that as well 
you know, um, you know, some really good PR if they came through that challenge and they won it. I'm sure that'd be really good for that business, right? They get they get a lot of publicity, and we're not the only landed estate that is starting to look at this stuff. I mean, Chatsworth, who are really good friends of ours, um, are doing something very similar in terms of really trying to penetrate the local economy and work a lot more with local businesses for the same kind of reasons we are. I mean, it's it, both that it makes economic sense, but frankly, also, it's part of the social contract we have with the world around us. I mean, as a land of the state, we're pretty blessed. We have to recognize that. So giving something back. You know what, is, I think that's good that you do recognize that because oh, some might not. But to go, to go, look, we are pretty blessed because not everyone is. And then if you open your doors to that, that's really quite nice, isn't it? I think that's yeah. really good. The other thing we, do, well, I think we do a lot of, incidentally, is is just participating in the local business networks, um, where you, you, yeah. you tend to get a much better penetration, particularly of newer businesses who are still at that very hungry phase, and making ourselves as open as possible through those networks. And you know, we never, when we get an inquiry in from you know, someone local, we'll, we'll always meet them or e-meet them or whatever even if it doesn't look on the face of it like there's anything we could see we could do because you just never know and and frankly encouraging people on the same entrepreneurial journey is by itself hugely valuable to us yeah absolutely there was another thing that i just picked up on there saying that you were friends with another state beyond oh lots of them yeah how important is that for a business owner to actually know other people in their industry oh my word when i was thinking about the sort of you know but when I talk to someone who's leaving and I'm kind of giving them these are the things I want you to know as you leave, one of them is it's easier with friends. Everything is. We're not on solo journeys here. And I'm very lucky that in the world of landed estates, because we're geographically separate from each other, we're not in any competition. Really. Yeah, yeah. So, And that's that's understood right through the landed estates world. So my, uh, we talked before about mentors in my life. I've been very blessed. But yeah, one of them, is the guy who runs the Northumberland estate. Nowhere near here, and 20 times the size of us, I would guess, <laughs> something like that. But an incredibly wise man who's walked these roads sort of 10, 20 years ahead of us. And that's true of many other landed estates. We're very close to the Eden Project, to Bewley, to Waddesdon, to Annick Castle, to Buccleuch, and things like that. The time we share online or face-to-face talking about the challenges we face and it isn't just where we face identical challenges it's just learning how people like us have found their way through a problem you never know when that's going to chime chime with you and even today you know, I, I talk about especially when i'm talking with younger people um oh God, i can't believe i said that as well <laughs> when i'm talking with younger people uh, yeah some people think learning is something that stops when you leave school or university my god i keep saying to people no no it starts up to that point they're spoon feeding you the learning active yeah. learning starts yeah. the moment you're out there and active learning you know active yeah. learning, it's a really good way of uh, phrasing it because you know the reality is as a business owner business is a game and as you go into it usually you only know a few a few little pieces of the game and if you want to get better that active learning needs to take place and around the numbers is certainly one thing around relationships is another marketing all of which you mentioned yeah well that's true i mean even today i'm part of a group that's just i'll call them random business leaders there's nothing random about them they're brilliant business leaders from the area from completely different areas a bus yeah. company here a, a pharmaceutical company there a, a district council over there and we take part in something called an active learning set each week, we'll spend two hours examining a problem that one of us is facing, but you're not allowed to, to give the answer 
the, or even what you think is the answer. You have to help that person ask the right questions to find their own way to an answer. And, you got to, and it's incredibly challenging yeah. whether you are the one on the receiving end or actually hearing about somebody's problem and asking the sorts of questions. It's like a mastermind or a part of Dominic, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. exactly like that. And it's incredibly valuable. Business it's not an underestimate. I think it's brilliant to hear that coming from someone like yourself who's a CEO of such a, a great place. Is the, the, the value of a mastermind is, is huge for people, you know, absolutely oh, huge. Yeah. Totally, totally. And, 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 and I also think, you know, mentors are incredibly valuable. And you know, I owe so much to those who have mentored me. And actually, I look back through the kind of weird, you know, career history and go how much different my progression might have been had I not been supported at key or inspired at key moments it's a very very precious thing indeed and actually although they never said that that, you know I talk about purpose and you know start with why the famous Simon Sinek book while none of those mentors ever talked about that with me they lived it still in there right you know I think oh yeah I think that having done this a long time now, where I've interviewed so many people, so many different real quality people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, the principles of success almost are almost the same. And it's just the different language of how those principles come out. You know, like you're saying, active learning, but that is a, a principle that, you know, never, ever stop improving, you know, or constant, never-ending improvement, right? All of these principles align when it comes to success. It's just the way it's described sometimes, right? And I see that running for every interview I do. And I think the audience, if, you know, for the people that are listening, you've got to look and you've got to hear the trend. You've got to see the trends. Because if you went, if you listen to a thousand interviews, you can listen to, you can see the trends of what people that are successful do and how they think and the actions you take. I think something's really interesting that you're saying is that your career took a different turn. And a lot of the time, people's careers don't flourish as much. And the reason they don't flourish as much is probably because they haven't met the right people to open the right doors or get the right opportunities or embrace the relationships enough. But where you say it's twisting and it's turning, you've met different mentors and you are where you are now, a lot of that would have come from actually, you know, proximity, wouldn't it? And opportunities, taking opportunities. Like you said, you're willing to go there to the interview in 15 minutes, where some people, you might think about applying for the job for two weeks rather than doing it in the second, you know, get things done, isn't it? It's all about making, taking action, right? Oh, at the right moment, for sure. I mean, my wife would laugh if she heard you now saying, you never get things done straight away. Um, <laughs> but life is sometimes about those key moments. And as you say, it's spotting that opportunity or that potential relationship and just going out the way, out the way. I, I'm, I'm going in that direction <laughs> yeah. now because I can spot, I can spot where it might take me. And I don't want to spend hours, days, weeks, months, years Absolutely. regretting the fact I didn't make that route yeah. change, as it were. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. Well, uh, it's been really, really interesting chat so far, Dominic. Is there anything that you want to share with business owners or a couple of bits of advice from your experience you want to give to business owners that might be listening today, you know, in terms of the things that they should be doing to grow their businesses? Yeah, I mean, the first to share, I mean, I think um, yeah, the pandemic has been a complete, well, it's been a horrendous experience, I think, for, for <laughs> yeah. all of us. Um, and and I know there are businesses that have wonderfully flourished through it because they were in the right business. And there's many more businesses that I'm full of admiration for because they absolutely entrepreneurially seized a moment or just spotted a need. It wasn't even an entrepreneurial thing. They just went, this area needs X. I'm going to start making it or doing it. 
and I'm full of admiration for those. I don't feel, you know, Blenheim was quite so quick off the mark. I mean, lots of individuals at Blenheim were, but it took us a while of kind of covering up and taking the punches before we went, hang on. If we believe, if we believe what we believe, we're going to fight, we're going to fight back and fight our way out of this. And I hope, for example, the communities around Blenheim will be more tied together for a long time to come because of the experience they've gone through and the, the way they have set up support groups spontaneously across social yeah. media and things just to make sure that neighbors got shopping, neighbors got medicine, people were being looked out for. But I think it's okay to say, you know, we struggled. Um, I, I think the idea that the, the, the myth that a successful business flourishes whatever the world throws of it is, is just that, it's a myth. And yeah. if, you, if you convince yourself, if you, if, you can, if you pitch the story, oh, we flourished, you're missing a great learning opportunity. We struggled, I struggled really badly in the pandemic. The fact that almost any simple decision you could make suddenly had consequences or problems associated with it, which would never have happened in... Yeah a normal time, yet yeah. everything has felt hard. Yet we have stuck together as a group. We have mentored each other. We have tried wholly new things that we would never have thought of trying before. And there are so many positives we can take out of that. But I think it's okay. Sometimes all of us struggle. And it's okay to put your hands up even with your own teams and say, wow, I'm wading through treacle right now. It is a team game. And a couple of members of my team have been absolutely immense in the last three months in kind of seizing the moment. Oh, and refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally. And that's the way a team sport works. You know, I'm a Manchester United fan who's not enjoyed the last five or six years, but in, in the last year <laughs> or so, generally someone has popped out of the morass to do something impressive and get us through a game. And I think that that's very much true in business. I think... The challenges of the pandemic means more businesses will go back and think about why they do what they do. And I think that's a really, really healthy thing. I'd urge people to read Simon Sinek's Start With Why or look around them for purposeful businesses, B Corps, all those things. Yeah. See how they alight on their vision and how they then pursue it. Because these businesses are not bad businesses. They're not kind of people going, well, we'll make a bit of a profit, but, but we want some nice fluffy bit on the side. They're actually incredibly oh, successful businesses that are unified by something. If you're a complex business like yeah. Blenheim that does all sorts, we have about 10 different business lines doing different things. You try to unify that without a purpose statement, and it's really, really difficult. But yeah. when everyone understands the direction we're all heading, that makes, that makes life so much easier. And I am optimistic for the future. That's not particularly a vaccination point, but I actually think people in this country have shown such resilience, such compassion for each other. And our next challenge is to go up and lift that next generation, those who've left school and university in the last four or five years, who have been really tripped up by this pandemic. They've had their social relationships fractured. Yeah, they're the people whom you can't say, oh, we could work as well at home as at work because they're still at the point of forging those relationships that make it easy for me to sit at home with my colleagues because we've worked together for 15 years in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they haven't. Yeah, it's very true. Good we we have to lift out. We yeah. have to lift up these younger people and, and give them the opportunities that Kickstart helps with, but it's not the only part of the solution. Yeah. Um, but I, I, thank, I thank all that is holy for the fact that you know, we can talk today online that, that hopefully 
the people we care for have been safe right through the pandemic and that we have an economy that's now waking up and many, many jobs preserved that, that might yeah. not have been. Do you feel there's going to be a good bounce back to the economy from your yeah. yeah. I'm very positive for, you know, especially in the visitor attraction business, which is quite, it's quite kind of sensitive. To yeah, I think economy. We, because everybody's been wanting to get out and everybody's been wanting to do things. And, well, we're know, blessed. We're like blessed. If you look up Blenheim or even think about Blenheim, if you know us, you'll think green spaces. So people start yeah. off with the assumption that, yeah, you know what, even if we're social distancing, we can social distance by 20 meters at Blenheim if yeah. we need to. I'm very positive that it'll be a domestic market. So the 20% of our visitors who come from abroad, they ain't coming, not this yeah, year. Yeah. But I think we've all been cooped up for so long that people will flock to the safest places and we're, we're big open spaces. And I think people will regain their confidence coming to places like well, Black. I have to come down and see you, Dominic. I'd love please to do, that. Adam. Please and do. If you, need, uh, if you need an awesome coach for your program that you want somebody to help you out with, I'll be really keen to do that as well. We should, we should talk yeah. after this call, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah brilliant stuff well look i think you've been a wonderful wonderful guest some amazing things there for business owners to take out of the conversation it's uh about a shadow of a doubt i think it's interesting to get some such a different business on which it really is a different business and see their perspectives and actually look at that longer term visions there's a lot of growth secrets there for the audience so uh, thank you very much for being a guest dominic you've been brilliant thank really you for having me awesome. thank you for having me Hey everybody, Adam here, and I hope you loved today's episode. Hope you thought it was fabulous. And if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favor. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets. And if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favorite episode is perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive Academy days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.